Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Chapter 7, The Slug Club. Harry spent a lot of the last week of the holidays pondering the meaning of Malfoy's behavior in Nocturne Alley. What disturbed him most was the satisfied look on Malfoy's face as he had left the shop. Nothing that made Malfoy look that happy could be good news. To his slight annoyance, however, neither Ron nor Hermione seemed quite as curious about Malfoy's activities as he was. Or at least, they seemed to get bored of discussing it after a few days. "'Yes, I've already agreed that it's fishy, Harry,' said Hermione, a little impatiently. She was sitting on the windowsill in Fred and George's room with her feet up on one of the cardboard boxes, and had only grudgingly looked up from her new copy of Advanced Rune Translation. "'But haven't we agreed? There could be lots of explanations.' Yeah, maybe he's broken his hand to glory, said Ron vaguely, as he attempted to straighten his broomstick's bent tail twigs. Remember that shriveled up arm Malfoy had? Yes, but what about when he said, don't forget to keep that one safe, asked Harry for the umpteenth time. That sounded to me like Borgen's got another one of the broken objects, and Malfoy wants both. You reckon, said Ron, now trying to scrape some dirt off the broom handle. Yeah, I do, said Harry. When neither Ron nor Hermione answered, he said, Malfoy's father's in Azkaban. Don't you think Malfoy'd like revenge? Malfoy, Ron looked up, blinking. Malfoy? Revenge? What can he do about it? That's my point. I don't know, said Harry, frustrated. But he's up to something, and I think he should take it seriously. His father's a death eater, and... Harry broke off, his eyes fixed on the window behind Hermione, his mouth open. A startling thought had just recurred to him. "'Harry,' said Hermione in an anxious voice. "'What's wrong?' "'Your scar's not opening again, is it?' said Ron nervously. "'He's a Death Eater,' said Harry slowly. "'He's replaced his father as a Death Eater.' There was a silence. Then Ron erupted in laughter. "'Malfoy! A 16, Harry. You think you know who would let Malfoy join?' "'It seems very unlikely, Harry.' said Hermione in a repressive sort of voice. What makes you think? And Madame Malkin. She didn't touch him, but he yelled and jerked his arm away from her when she went to roll up his sleeve. It was his left arm. He's been branded with the dark mark. Ron and Hermione looked at each other. Well, said Ron, sounding thoroughly unconvinced. I think he just wanted to get out to the Harry, said Hermione. He showed Borgen something we couldn't see. Harry pressed on stubbornly, something that seriously scared Borgen. It was the mark, I know it. He was showing Borgen who he was dealing with, and you saw how seriously Borgen took him. Ron and Hermione exchanged another look. I'm not sure, Harry. Yeah, I don't think you know who would let Malfoy join. Annoyed, but absolutely convinced he was right, Harry snatched up a pile of filthy Quidditch robes and left the room. Mrs. Weasley had been urging them for days not to leave their washing and packing until the last moment. On the landing, he bumped into Jenny, who was returning to her room, carrying a pile of freshly laundered clothes. I wouldn't go in the kitchen just now, she warned him. There's a lot of phlegm around. I'll be careful not to step in it, smiled Harry. <laughs> sure enough, when he entered the kitchen, it was to find Fleur sitting at the kitchen table in full flow about plans for her wedding to Bill, while Mrs. Weasley kept watch over a pile of self-peeling sprouts, looking bad-tempered. Bill and I have almost decided on almost two, only two bridesmaids. Ginny and Gabrielle will look very sweet together. I am thinking of dressing them in pale gold. Pink would, of course, be horrible with Ginny's air. Ah, uh, Harry, 
said Mrs. Weasley loudly, cutting across Flora's monologue. Good. I wanted to explain about the security arrangements for the journey to Hogwarts tomorrow. We've got ministry cars again, and there'll be Aurors waiting at the station. Is Tonks going to be there? asked Harry, handing over his Quidditch things. No, I don't think so. She's been stationed somewhere else from what Arthur said. She has let herself go, that Tonks, mused Flora, examining her own stunning reflection in the back of a teaspoon. A big mistake, if you ask. Yes, thank you, said Mrs. Weasley tartly, cutting across floor again. You'd better get on, Harry. I want the trunks ready tonight, if possible, so we don't have to use your last-minute scramble. And, in fact, their departure the, the following morning was smoother than usual. The ministry cars glided up to the front of the burrow to find them waiting. Trunks packed, Hermione's cat Crookshank safely enclosed in his traveling basket, and Hedwig, Ron's owl pigwidgeon, and Jenny's new purple pygmy puff Arnold in cages. Au revoir, Harry, said Flora throatily, kissing him goodbye. Ron hurried forwards, looking hopeful, but Jenny stuck out her foot and Ron fell, sprawling in the dust at Flora's feet. Furious, red-faced, and dirt-spattered, he hurried into the car without saying goodbye. There was no cheerful Hagrid waiting for him at the King's Cross station. Instead, two grim-faced, bearded auras in dark muggle suits moved forward the moment the cars stopped, and flanking the party, marched them into the station without speaking. "'Quick, quick, through the barrier,' said Mrs. Weasley, who seemed a little flustered by this austere efficiency. "'Harry, better go first, with—' She looked inquiringly at one of the auras, who nodded briefly, seized Harry's upper arm, and attempted to steer him towards the barrier between platforms nine and ten. "'I can walk, thanks,' said Harry irritably, jerking his arm out of the auras' grip. He pushed his trolley directly at the solid barrier, ignoring his silent companion, and found himself, a second later, standing on platform nine and three-quarters, where the Scarlet Hogwarts Express stood belching steam over the crowd. Hermione and the Weasleys joined in within seconds. Without waiting to consult his grim-faced R, Harry motioned to Ron and Hermione to follow him up the platform, looking for an empty compartment. "'We can't, Harry,' said Hermione, looking apologetic. "'Ron and I have got to go to the prefect carriage first, and then patrol the corridors for a bit.' "'Oh, yeah, I forgot,' said Harry." "'You better get on straight to the train, all of you. "'You've only got a few minutes left to go,' said Mrs. Weasley, consulting her watch. "'Well, have a lovely term, Ron.' "'Um, Mr. Weasley, can I have a quick word?' said Harry, making up his mind on the spur of the moment. "'Well, of course,' said Mr. Weasley, who looked slightly surprised, but followed Harry out of earshot of the others nevertheless. Harry had thought it through carefully and come to the conclusion that, if he were to tell anyone, Mr. Weasley would be the right person. Firstly, because he worked at the ministry and therefore was the best position to make further investigations, and secondly, because he thought there was not too much risk of Mr. Weasley exploding with anger. He could see Mrs. Weasley in the grim-faced horror, casting the pair of them with suspicious looks as they moved away. When we were at Diagon Alley, Harry began, but Mr. Weasley forestalled him with a grimace. Am I about to discover where you, Ron and Hermione, disappeared to while you were supposed to be in the back room of Fred and George's shop? How did you... Harry, please. You're talking to the man who raised Fred and George. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, We weren't in the back room. Very well, then. Let's hear the worst. Well, we followed Draco Malfoy. We used my invisibility cloak. Did you have any particular reason for doing so, or was it a mere whim? Because I thought Malfoy's up to something, said Harry, disregarding Mr. Weasley's look of mingled exasperation and amusement. He'd given his mother the slip, and I wanted to know why. Of course you did, said Mr. Weasley, sending resigned. Well, what did you find out? 
He went into Borgen and Burke's, said Harry, and he started bullying the bloke in there, Borgen, to help him fix something, and he said he wanted Borgen to help keep something else for him. He made it sound like there was the same kind of thing that needed fixing, like there were a pair, and... Harry took a deep breath. There's something else. We saw Malfoy jump about a mile when Madame Morgan tried to touch his left arm. I think he's been branded with the Dark Mog. I think he's replaced his father as a Death Eater. Mr. Weasley looked taken aback. After a moment, he said, Harry, I doubt whether you know who would allow a 16-year-old. Does anyone really know what you know who would or wouldn't do? Said Harry angrily. Mr. Weasley, I'm sorry, but isn't it worth investigating? If Malfoy wants something fixing, and he needs to threaten Borgen to get it done, it's probably something dark or dangerous, isn't it? I doubt it, to be honest, Harry, said Mr. Weasley slowly. You see, when Lucius Malfoy was arrested, we raided his house. We took away everything that might have been dangerous. I think you missed something, said Harry stubbornly. Well, maybe, said Mr. Weasley, but Harry could tell that Mr. Weasley was humoring him. There was a whistle behind them, and nearly everyone had boarded the train, and the doors were closing. You'd better hurry, said Mr. Weasley, and Mrs. Weasley cried, Harry, quickly! He hurried forwards, and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley helped him float his trunk onto the train. Now, dear, you're coming for us to Christmas. It's all fixed with Dumbledore, so we'll see you quite soon, said Mrs. Weasley through the window. As Harry slammed the door shut behind him, and the train began to move. You make sure you look after yourself, and... The train was gathering speed. Be good, and... She was jogging to keep up now. Stay safe. Harry waved until the train had turned a corner and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley were lost from view, then turned to see where the others had got to. He supposed Ron and Hermione were cloistered in the prefect carriage, but Jenny was a little way along the corridor chatting to some friends. He made his way towards her, dragging his trunk. People stared shamelessly as he approached. They even pressed their faces against the windows of their compartments to get a look at him. He had expected an upswing in amount of gaping and gawping he would have to endure this term after all the chosen one rumors and the daily profit. But he did not enjoy the sensation of standing in a very bright spotlight. He tapped Jenny on the shoulder. Um, fancy trying to find a compartment. Um, I can't, Harry. I said I'd meet Dean, said Jenny brightly. See you later. Right, said Harry. He felt a strange twinge of annoyance as she walked away, her long red hair dancing behind her. He had become so used to her presence over the summer that he almost forgotten that Jenny did not hang around with him, Ron and Hermione, while at school. Then he blinked and looked around. He was surrounded by mesmerized girls. Hi, Harry, said a familiar voice from behind him. Neville, said Harry in relief, turning to see a round-faced boy struggling towards him. Hello, Harry, said a girl with long hair and large misty eyes who was just behind Neville. Luna, hi, how are you? Very well, thank you, said Luna. She was clutching a magazine to her chest. Large letters on the front announced that there was a pair of free spectrospects inside. The quibble is still going strong, then, said Harry, who felt a certain fondness for the magazine, having given it an exclusive interview for the previous year. Oh, yes, circulation's well up, said Luna happily. Let's find seats, said Harry, and all three of them set off along the train through hordes of silently staring students. At last they found an empty compartment, and Harry hurried inside gratefully. They're even staring at us, said Neville, indicating himself and Luna, because we were with you. They're staring at you because you were at the ministry, too, said Harry, as he hoisted his trunk into the luggage rack. Our little adventure there was all over the Daily Prophet. You must have seen it. 
Yeah, I thought Gran would be angry about all the publicity, said Neville, but she was really pleased. Says I'm starting to live up to my dad at long last. She bought me a new wand. Look. He pulled it out and showed it to Harry. Cherry and unicorn hair, he said proudly. We think it was one of the last that Ollivander ever sold. He vanished the next day. Oi, come back over here, Trevor. As he dived under a seat to retrieve his toad as it made one of its frequent bids for freedom. Are we still doing TA meetings this year, Harry? Asked Luna, who was detaching a pair of psychedelic spectacles from the middle of the quibbler. No point now that we've got Devenbridge, is there? Said Harry, sitting down. Neville bumped his head against the seat as he emerged from under it. He looked most disappointed. I like the DA. I learned loads with you. I enjoyed the meetings too, said Luna serenely. It was like having friends. This was one of those uncomfortable things Luna often said, which made Harry feel a squirming mixture of pity and embarrassment. Before he could respond, however, there was a disturbance outside their compartment door. A group of fourth-year girls was whispering and giggling together on the other side of the glass. You ask him, no, you, you, I'll do it. And one of them, a bold-looking girl with large dark eyes, a prominent chin, and long black hair, pushed her way through the door. Hi, Harry, I'm Romilda, Romilda Vane, she said loudly and confidently. Why don't you join us in our compartment? You don't have to sit with them, she said in a stage whisper, indicating Neville bottom, Neville's bottom, which was sticking out from under the seat again as he groped around for Trevor, and Luna, who was now wearing her free spectre specs, which gave her the look of a demented, multicolored owl. They're friends of mine, said Harry coldly. Oh, said the girl, looking very surprised. Oh, okay. And she withdrew, sliding the door closed behind her. People expect you to have cooler friends than us, said Luna, once again displaying her knack for embarrassing honesty. You are cool, said Harry shortly. None of them was at the ministry. They didn't fight with me. That's a very nice thing to say, beamed Luna, and she pushed her spectre specs further up her nose and settled down to read the quibbler. We didn't face him, though, said Neville, emerging from under the seat with fluff and dust in his hair and a resigned-looking Trevor in his hand. You did. You should, be, you should hear my grand talk about you. That Harry Potter's got more backbone than the whole Ministry of Magic put together. She'd give anything to give you a, have you as a grandson. Harry laughed uncomfortably and changed the subject to OWL results as soon as he could. While Neville recited his grades and wondered aloud whether he would be allowed to take a transfiguration in EWT with only an acceptable, Harry watched him without really listening. Neville's childhood had been blighted by Voldemort just as much as Harry's had, but Neville had no idea how close he had come to having Harry's destiny. The prophecy could have referred to either of them, yet for his own inscrutable reasons, Voldemort had chosen to believe that Harry was the one meant. Had Voldemort chosen Neville, it would be Neville sitting opposite Harry, bearing the lightning-shaped scar and the weight of the prophecy. Or would it? Would Neville's mother have died to save him as Lily had died for Harry? Surely she would. But what if she had been unable to stand between her son and Voldemort? Would there, then, have been no chosen one at all? An empty seat where Neville now sat and a scarless Harry who would have been kissed goodbye by his own mother, not Ron's? Are you all right, Harry? You look funny, said Neville. Harry started. Sorry, I, um... Raxbert got you, said Luna sympathetically, peering at Harry through her enormous colored spectacles. I... what? Raxbert? They're invisible. They float in through your ears and make your brains go fuzzy, she said. I thought I felt one zooming around in here. 
She flapped her hands at thin air as though beating off a large invisible moths. Harry and Neville caught each other's eye and hastily began to talk about Quidditch. The weather beyond the train windows was as patchy as it had been all summer. They passed through stretches of chilling, chilling mist, then out into weak, clear sunlight. It was during one of the clear spells, when the sun was visible almost directly overhead, that Ron and Hermione entered the compartment at last. Wish that lunch trolley would hurry up. I'm starving, said Ron longingly, slumping into the seat beside Harry and rubbing his stomach. Hi, Neville. Hi, Luna. Guess what? He added, turning to Harry. Malfoy's not doing prefect duty. He's just sitting in his compartment with the other Slytherins. We saw him when he passed. Harry sat up straight, interested. It was not like Malfoy to pass up the chance to demonstrate his power as prefect, which he had happily abused all the previous year. What did he do when he saw you? Oh, the usual, said Ron indifferently, demonstrating a rude hand gesture. Not like him, though, is it? Well, that is. He did the hand gesture again. Why isn't he out there, bullying first years? I don't know, said Harry, but his mind was racing. Didn't this look as though Malfoy had more important things on his mind than bullying younger students? Maybe he preferred the inquisitorial squad, said Hermione. Maybe being a prefect seems rather tame after that. Um, I don't think so, said Harry. I think he's... But before he could expound on his theory, the compartment door opened, slid, uh, slid open again, and a breathless third-year girl stepped inside. I'm supposed to deliver these to Neville Longbottom and Harry Papa Potter, she faltered, and her eyes met Harry's and she turned scarlet. She was holding out two scrolls of parchment tied with violet ribbon. Perplexed, Harry and Neville took the scroll addressed to each of them, and the girl stumbled back out of the compartment. What is it? Ron demanded, and Harry enrolled his. It's an invitation, said Harry. Harry, I'd be delighted if you'd join me for a bite of lunch in compartment C. Sincerely, Professor H.E.F. Slughorn. Who's Professor Slughorn? asked Neville, looking perplexedly at his own invitation. He's a new teacher, said Harry. Well, I suppose we'll have to go, won't we? What does he want me for? asked Neville nervously, as though he was expecting detention. No idea, said Harry, which was not entirely true, though he had no proof yet that his hunch was correct. Listen, he added, seized by a sudden brainwave. Let's go under the invisibility cloak, then we might get a good look at Malfoy on the way to see what he's up to. This idea, however, came to nothing. The corridors, which were packed with people on the lookout for the lunch trolley, were impossible to negotiate while wearing the cloak. Harry stowed it regretfully back in his bag, reflecting that it would have been nice to wear it just to avoid all the staring, which seemed to have increased in intensity even since she, he had last walked down the train. Every now and then, students would hurtle out of their compartments to get a better look at him. The exception was Cho Chang, who darted into her compartment when she saw Harry coming. As Harry passed the window, he saw her deep and determined conversation with her friend Marietta, who was wearing a very thick layer of makeup that did not entirely obscure the odd formation of pimples still etched on her face. Smirking slightly, Harry pushed on. When they reached compartment C, they saw at once that they were not Slughorn's only invitees, though judging by the enthusiasm of Slughorn's welcome, Harry was the most warmly anticipated. Harry, my boy, said Slughorn, jumping at the sight of him so that the great velvety-covered belly seemed to fill all the remaining space in the compartment. His shiny bald head and great silver mustache gleamed as brightly in the sunlight as the golden buttons on his waistcoat. On his waistcoat. Good to see you, good to see you, and you must be Mr. Longbottom. Neville nodded, looking scared. At a gesture from Slughorn, they sat down opposite each other in the only two empty seats, which were nearest the door. Harry glanced around at their fellow guest. 
He recognized a Slytherin from their year, a tall black boy with high cheekbones and long slanting eyes. There were also two seventh-year boys Harry did not know, and squashed in the corner beside Slughorn and looking as though she was not entirely sure how she had got there, was Jenny. Now, do you know everyone? Slughorn asked Harry and Neville. Blaze Zabini's in your year, of course. Zabini did not make any sign of recognition or greeting, nor did Harry or Neville. Gryffindor and Slytherin students loathed each other on principle. This is Cormac McLagan. Perhaps you've come across each other. No. McLagan, a large, wire-haired youth, raised a hand and Harry nodded, nodded back at him. This is Marcus Belby. I don't know whether... Belby, who was thin and nervous-looking, gave a strange smile. And this charming young lady tells me she knows you. Slughorn finished. Jenny grimaced at Harry and Neville behind, from behind Slughorn's back. Well, now, this is most pleasant, said Slughorn cozily. Chance to get you all to know you all a little better. Here, take a napkin. I've packed away my own lunch. The trolleys, I remember, is heavy on licorice ones, and a poor old man's digestive system isn't quite up to such things. Pheasant, Belby? Belby started and accepted what looked like a half of a cold pheasant. I was just telling young Marcus here that I had the pleasure of teaching his uncle Damocles. Slughorn toward Harry and Neville, now passing on a basket of rolls. Outstanding, wizard, outstanding, and his order of melon most well-deserved. Do you see much of your uncle, Marcus? Unfortunately, Belby had just taken a large mouthful of pheasant, and in his haste to answer Slughorn, he swallowed too fast, turned purple, and began to choke. Anapunko. Uh, no, sorry, I can't read that small. Anapneo. Anapneo, there it is said Slughorn calmly, pointing his wand at Belby, whose airway seemed to clear at once. Um, no, not much of him, no, gasped Belby, his eyes steaming. Well, of course I dare say he's busy, said Slughorn, looking questioningly at Belby. I doubt he's invented the Wolfbane's potion without considerable hard work. I suppose, said Belby, he seemed afraid to take another bite of pheasant until he was sure Slughorn had finished with him. Um, he and my dad don't get on very well, you see. I don't Really know much about. His voice tailed away as Slughorn gave him a cold smile and turned to McLagan instead. Now you, Cormac, said Slughorn, I happen to know you. See a lot of your uncle Tiberius, for he has a rather splendid picture of the two of you hunting nogtails in, I think, Norfolk. Oh yeah, that was fun, that was, said McLagan. We were with Bertie Higgs and Rufus, Rufus Grimgar. This was before he became minister, obviously. Ah, you know Bertie and Rufus too, beamed Slughorn now offering around a small tray of pies. Somehow, Belby was missed out. Now, tell me. It was as Harry suspected. Everyone here seemed to have been invited because they were connected to somebody well-known or influential. Everyone except Jenny. Sabini, who was interrogated after McLagan, turned out to have been a, have a famously beautiful witch for mother. From what Harry could make out, she had been married seven times, each of her husbands dying mysteriously and leaving her mounds of gold. It was, Harry, it was Neville's turn next. This was a very uncomfortable ten minutes. For Neville's parents, well-known horrors, had been tortured into insanity by Bellatrix Lestrange and a couple of Death Eater cronies. At the end of Neville's inter interview, Harry had the impression that Slughorn was re reserving judgment on Neville, yet to see whether he had any of his parents' flair. And now, said Slughorn, shifting massively in his seat with the air of a compere introducing his star act, Harry Potter... Where to begin? I feel I barely scratched the surface when we met over the summer. He contemplated Harry for a moment as though he was a particularly large and succulent piece of pheasant and said, The Chosen One, they're calling you that now.
Harry said nothing. Belby, McLagan, and Zabini were all staring at him. Well, of course, said Slughorn, watching Harry closely. There have been rumors for years. I remember when, well, after that terrible night, Lily, James, and you survived. And the word was that you had powers beyond the ordinary. Zabini gave a tiny little cough that was clearly supposed to indicate amused skepticism. An angry voice burst out from behind Slughorn. Yeah, Sabini, because you're so talented at posing. Oh, dear, chuckled Slughorn comfortably, looking around at Jenny, who was glaring at Zabini around Slughorn's great belly. You want to be careful, please. I saw this young lady perform the most marvelous bat bogey hacks as I was passing a carriage. I wouldn't cross her. Zabini merely looked contemptuous. Anyway, said Slughorn, turning back to Harry, such rumors this summer. Of course, one doesn't know what to believe. The prophet has been known to print inaccuracies, make mistakes. But there seems little doubt, given the ministry number of witnesses, that there was quite a disturbance of the ministry and that you were there in the thick of it all. Harry, who could not see any way out of this without flatly lying, nodded, but still said nothing. Slughorn beamed at him. So modest, so modest. No wonder Dumbledore's so fond. You were there then. But the rest of the story is so sensational, of course. One doesn't know quite what to believe. This fabled prophecy, for instance. We never heard the prophecy, said Neville, turning geranium pink as he said it. That's right, said Jenny staunchly. Neville and I were both there too, and all this chosen one rubbish is just the prophet making things up as usual. You were both there too, were you? said Slughorn with great interest, looking from Jenny to Neville, but though both of them sat clam-like before his encouraging smile. Yes, well... It is true that the prophet often exaggerates, of course, Slughorn continued, sounding a little disappointed. I remember dear Quinog telling me, Quinog Jones, I mean, of course, captain of the Holyhead Harpies. He meandered off into a long-winded reminiscence, but Harry had the distinct impression that Slughorn had not finished with him and that he had not yet been convinced by Neville and Jenny. The afternoon wore on with more anecdotes about illustrious wizards Slughorn had taught, all of whom had been delighted to join what he called the Slug Club at Hogwarts. Harry could not wait to leave, but couldn't see how to do so politely. Finally, the train emerged from yet another long, misty stretch into a red sunset, and Slughorn looked around, blinking into the twilight. Good gracious, it's getting dark already. I didn't notice that they'd lit the lamps. You've better go and change at your robes, all of you. McLagan, you must drop by and borrow that book on Nogtails. Harry, Blaze, any time you're passing. Same goes for you, mess. He twinkled at Jenny. Well, off you go, off you go. As he pushed past, Harry looked into the darkening corridor. Zabini shot him a filthy look that Harry returned with interest. He, Jenny, and Neville followed Zabini back along the train. I'm glad that's over, muttered Neville. Strange man, isn't he? Yeah, he is a bit, said Harry, his eyes on Zabini. How come you ended up in there, Jenny? He saw me hex Zachariah Smith, said Jenny. You remember that idiot from Hufflepuff who was in the DA? He kept on asking about what happened in the ministry, and in the end he annoyed me so much that I hexed him. But Slughorn came in, I thought I was really going to get detention. But he just thought it was a really good hex and invited me to lunch. Mad, eh? Better reason for inviting someone than because of their mother's famous, said Harry, scowling at the back of Zabini's head because their uncle, but he broke off. An idea just occurred to him, a reckless but potentially wonderful idea. In a minute's time, Zabini was going to re-enter the Slytherin six-year compartment, and Malfoy would be sitting there, thinking of himself unheard by anyone except fellow Slytherins. 
If Harry could only enter unseen behind him, what might not he see? What might he not see or hear? True, there was a little of the journey left. Hogsmeade Station had to be less than half hour away, judging by the wildness of the scenery flashing by the windows. But nobody else seemed prepared to take Harry's suspicious suspicions seriously, so it was down to him to prove them. I'll see you two later, said Harry under his breath, pulling out his invisibility cloak and flinging it over himself. But what are you? asked Neville. Later, whispered Harry, darting after Zabini as quietly as possible through the rattling of the train made such caution almost pointless. The corridors were almost completely empty now. Nearly everyone had returned to their carriages to change into the school robes and pack up their possessions. Though he was as, he, as close as he could get to Zabini without touching him, Harry was not quick enough to slip into the compartment when Zabini opened the door. Zabini was already sliding it shut when Harry hastily stuck out his foot to prevent it closing. What's wrong with this thing? said Zabini angrily as he smashed the sliding door repeatedly into Harry's foot. Harry seized the door and pushed it open hard. Zabini, still clinging to the handle, toppled over sideways into Gregory Goyle's lap, and in the ensuing ruckus, Harry darted into the compartment, leapt onto Zabini's temporarily empty seat, and hoisted himself up into the luggage rack. It was fortunate that Goyle and Zabini were snarling at each other, drawing all eyes on them, for Harry was quite sure his feet and ankles had been revealed as the cloak had flapped around them. Indeed, for one horrible moment, he thought he saw Malfoy's eyes follow his trainer as it whipped upwards out of sight. But then Goyle slammed the door shut and flung Zabini off him. Zabini collapsed into his own seat, looking ruffled. Vincent Crabbe returned to his comic, and Malfoy, snickering, laid back into across two seats with his head in Pansy Parkinson's lap. Harry lay curled uncomfortably under the cloak to ensure that every inch of him remained hidden and watched Pansy stroke the sleek blonde hair off Malfoy's forehead, smirking as she did so, as though anyone would have loved to have been in her place. The lantern swinging from the carriage ceiling cast a bright light over the scene. Harry could read every word of Crabbe's comic directly below him. So, Zabini, said Malfoy, what did Slughorn want? Just trying to make up to some well-connected people, said Zabini, who was still glowering at Goyle. Not that he managed to find many. This information did not seem to please Malfoy. Who else had he invited? He demanded. McLagan from Gryffindor. Oh, yeah, his uncle's big in the ministry, said Malfoy. Someone called Bellbeard from Ravenclaw. <laughs> not him, he's a prat, said Pansy. And Longbottom, Potter, and that Weasley girl, finished Zabini. Malfoy sat up suddenly, knocking Pansy's hand aside. He invited Longbottom. Well, I assume so, as Longbottom was there, said Zabini indifferently. What's Longbottom got to interest Slughorn? Zabini shrugged. Potter, precious Potter, obviously he wanted to look at the chosen one, sneered Malfoy. But that Weasley girl, what's so special about her? A lot of boys like her said Pansy, watching Malfoy out of the corner of her eyes for his reaction. Even you think she's good-looking, don't you, Blaze? For we all know how hard you are to please. I wouldn't touch that filthy little blood traitor like her, whatever she looked like, said Zabini coldly, and Pansy looked pleased. Malfoy sat back across the, sank back across her lap and allowed her to resume the stroking of his hair. Well, I pity Slughorn's taste. Maybe he's going a bit senile. Shame, my father always used to say he was a good wizard in his day. My father used to be a bit of a favorite of his. 
Slughorn probably hasn't heard I'm on the train, or... I wouldn't bake on an invitation, said Zabini. He asked me about Knott's father when I first arrived. They used to be old friends, apparently, but when he heard that I'd been caught at the ministry, he didn't look happy, and Knott didn't get an invitation, did he? I don't think Slughorn's interested in Death Eaters. Malfoy looked angry, but forced out a singularly humorous, humorless laugh. Well, who cares what he's interested in? What is he, when you come down to it? Just some stupid teacher. Malfoy yawned ostentatiously. I mean, I might not even be at Hogwarts next year. What's it matter to me if some fat old has-been likes me or not? What do you mean you might not be at Hogwarts next year? Said Pansy indignantly, creasing, ceasing grooming Malfoy at once. Well, you never know, said Malfoy with a ghost of a smirk. I might have um, moved on to bigger and better things. Crouched in the luggage rack underneath his cloak, Harry's heart began to race. What would Ron and Hermione say about this? Crabbe and Goyle were gawping at Malfoy. Apparently, they had no inkling of any plans to move on to bigger, better things. Even Zabini had allowed a look of curiosity to mar his haughty features. Pansy resumed the slow stroking of Malfoy's hair, looking dumbfounded. You mean him? Malfoy shrugged. Mother wants me to complete my education, but personally I don't see it as that important these days. I mean, think about it. When the Dark Lord takes over, is he going to care how many OWLs or any WTs anyone's got? Of course he isn't. It'll all be about what kind of service he's received, the level of devotion he was shown. Do you think you'll be able to do something for him? Asked Zemini scathingly, 16 years old and not even fully qualified yet. I've just said, haven't I? Maybe he doesn't care if I'm qualified. Maybe the job he wants me to do isn't something that you need to be qualified for, said Malfoy quietly. Crab and Goyle were both sitting with their mouths open like gargoyles. Pansy was gazing down at Malfoy as though he had never seen anything so awe-inspiring. I can see Hogwarts, said Malfoy, clearly relishing the effect that he had created as he pointed out of the blackened window. We'd better get our robes on. Harry was so busy staring at Malfoy, he did not notice Goyle reaching up for his trunk. As, it, as he swung it down, it hit Harry hard on the side of the head. He let out an involuntarily gasp of pain, and Malfoy looked up at the luggage rack, frowning. Harry was not afraid of Malfoy, but he still did not much like the idea of being discovered hiding under his invisibility cloak by a group of unfriendly Slytherins. Eyes still watering and head still throbbing, he drew his wand, careful not to disarrange the cloak, and waited, breath held. To his relief, Malfoy seemed to decide that he imagined the noise. He pulled on his robes like the others, locked his trunk, and as the, as the train slowed to a jerky crawl, fastened a thick new traveling cloak around his neck. Harry could see the corridors filling up again and hoped that Ron and Hermione would take his things out onto the platform for him. He was stuck where he was until the compartment had quite emptied. At last, with a final lurch, the train came to a complete halt. Goyle threw open the doors and muscled his way out into the crowd of second years, punching them aside. Crabbe and Sabini followed. You go on, Malfoy told Pansy, who was waiting for him with her hand held out as though hoping he would hold it. I just want to check on something. Pansy left. Now Harry and Malfoy were alone in the compartment. People were filing past, descending onto the dark platform. Malfoy moved over to the compartment door and let down the blinds so that people in the corridor beyond could not peer in. 
Then he bent down over his trunk and opened it again. Harry peered down over the edge of the luggage rack, his heart pumping a little faster. What had Malfoy wanted to hide from Pansy? Was he about to see the mysterious broken object that was so important to mend? Petrificus totalis! Without warning, Malfoy pointed his wand at Harry, who was instantly paralyzed. As though in slow motion, he toppled out of the luggage rack and fell with an agonizing, floor-shaking crash at Malfoy's feet. The invisibility cloak trapped beneath him, his whole body revealed with his legs still curled absurdly into the cramped kneeling position. He couldn't move a muscle. He could only gaze up at Malfoy, who smiled broadly. I thought so, he said jubilantly. I heard Goyle's trunk hit you, and then I thought I saw something white flash through the air after Zabini came back. His eyes lingered for a moment upon Harry's trainers. That was you blocking the door when Zabini came back in, I suppose. He considered Harry for a moment. You didn't hear anything I care about, Potter, but while I've got you here... And he stamped hard on Harry's face. Harry felt his nose break. Blood spurted everywhere. That's from my father. Now let's see. Malfoy dragged the cloak out from under Harry's immobilized body and threw it completely over him. I don't reckon they'll find you till the train's back in London, he said quietly. See you around, Potter, or not. And taking care to tread on Harry's fingers, Malfoy left the compartment. Chapter 8, Snape Victorious is next.